Gresham College presents Girls into Science, Part Four: Problems Faced by Women in Science, by Professor Susan Greenfield, Gresham Professor of Physic. Now, this is how I used to see science when I was at school.、Um, this is Charlton Heston as Moses, and there's two important facts to grasp here: one is he's male, and two that there are、um, ideas carved in stone. Now, the first was that I thought, like、um, many of you, but Uh, I had the excuse that it was in the non-politically correct days of the 1960s.、Um, I thought that men did science, and that was the end of it.、Um, and I thought that science—they、uh, were welcome to it, frankly, because all science was already carved in, in stone or whatever. That it was already extremely well known. It wasn't addressing issues anyway that I was caring about, like why did people fall in love, or why did wars start, or what were relationships all about, and why was I the sort of person I was, and why were some people nice and some people horrible, and so on. None of that was addressed. In fact, it seemed to be an abstracted world of irrelevant and rather tedious facts,、um, where the answers were already known. I remember we had to play with these ticker tape trolleys, where you had little. Ah,、uh, oh, obviously you still do that. <laughs> yeah, well, the, well the, you know, the ticker tape trolleys. Frankly, if they were competing, you know, with Dido falling in love with Aeneas. Guess what was the, what for me? What was the more interesting? So、um, I had no problems at all about not choosing science, and、uh, therefore I would like to perceive using myself as an example. Have the next slide, please. Actually, no, I can do it myself.、Um, I had no problem. Sorry, this is not very well focused. But really, these are just to cue me in, rather than expecting you at the back to have 2020 brilliant vision to see this.、Um, I think science is, and this is why we're all here, of course. Um, still unpopular with schoolgirls. The two reasons that struck me when I was preparing this slide was sexual stereotyping and no room for originality. And I'll just amplify those slightly. With sexual stereotyping, one assumes that men like taking cars apart and so on. I remember when I was、um, growing up, it was my brother that went with my father to help him quote、um, service the car on, on a Sunday morning. They'd, they'd spent hours sort of taking the engine apart and tinkering over things. And, I was never invited down to that. It was assumed that taking things apart, seeing how machines work, was something that girls weren't particularly interested in. And in fact, we know that on the whole, girls have very good communication skills, are very good at languages,、um, learn to read earlier, whereas boys are better, it seems, at visual motor skills. And this happens to be, in a broad sweep, the kind of tendencies that girls and boys、uh, tend to display. On the other hand, when I did an experiment. To illustrate just that point, at the Royal Institution lectures, I was very、um, put in my place, very sobered by the fact that with an N of three—that's three girls and three boys—the boys ended up better than the girls on the language skills, and similarly, the girls defeated the boys on the visual motor skills. Which shows that you can't generalise about people. You can speak perhaps in stereotypes, but you shouldn't yourself、um, apply it to an individual case.、Um, more importantly, of course, was this issue of originality. I think we all like to feel we're having an idea. We all like to have our opinion. One of the greatest thrills about writing an essay, perhaps I don't know if it's the same for you, for me was to be able to put a conclusion of my own at the end, even if it was fairly banal. Nonetheless, it was your idea. And in science, the way sometimes it's taught is one is not allowed to have one's own idea simply because the apprenticeship that one has to fulfil is very formidable before you are even qualified or even、um, have a feel of what kind of answer or conclusion you should have. My own view is that somehow, if Even at、um, GCSE level or before, you could be shown that science is not fixed; it's not cast in stone. That you can have ideas, but you have to fulfil the apprenticeship first. I think that would be doing a service. I've also scribbled some other、um, issues down here, which have occurred to me、uh, as the day's gone on, and also on thinking about it. Given that we're addressing primarily this issue, why is science unpopular with schoolgirls? That I think、uh, bear amplification. 
The first is this issue, if you like, of what I've called content versus context. I think that boys um, like the magic bullet, they like the specific answer, the old atavistic hunter instinct, they like to go for it, get the answer. There was a very interesting film once of little seven-year-olds where the boys, when they were left in a waiting room, with access to lots of games, were saying, you be red, you be blue, you go here, you go there. The little girls, on the other hand, were saying, how many brothers and sisters have you got? What your, what's your mummy's name? What are you going to be when you grow up? And while they were asking these questions, establishing a relationship, they were half-heartedly picking up the red and blue toys and so on. But their agenda was to establish a relationship with the boys. It was to compete. And I think that perhaps that kind of mentality, if indeed it is, um, more a tendency in the male mind, um, would lend itself more to being given facts that they have to home in on and learn and master, whereas for girls, the issue is more um, to establish a relationship, to see the relevance of things, to develop ideas in a rather balanced way. Someone also said, and this is Jessica Rawson's idea, she's the principal of Merton College, she said she thinks that women are more comfortable with a lot of uncertainties, a sort of ecosphere arrangement of facts, rather than going for it and getting the magic bullet answer. Now, if that's the case, women would be happier with biology, where there's lots of um, interrelated facts and no very specific answer. For example, um, in my particular case, what's the cause of Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease? We don't know what the cause is, but we're happy juggling up lots of different factors, thinking in terms of interactive factors in systems systems rather than the answer to this is this. And it might be, therefore, that to try and open up the scientific vista for girls, perhaps teachers could have a, a thought to giving it more of a context rather than just giving it facts, facts, facts. I think if one can be shown to apply those facts or use those facts or see how those facts led to an idea, um, then that actually might be uh, a more valuable way of, of approaching it. So that's what I've said here, it's being able to see the wood for the trees. That's why I hate the term hard science, as if interactive science, where there's lots of variables, where things aren't known, are referred to as soft, simply because you can't get to them easily. To my mind, the, the very word hard science um, is a misnomer. And then we come across to the image of the scientist. The image of the scientist is often perceived as the person who wants uh, world domination, the person who's into killing living things off by polluting, the person who is getting an emotion-free robot, and the person who is designing articles of war. All those things are associated with men. All right, sort of killing living things, um, going to war, and having robots who don't have the intuition that we have, allegedly, um, that don't have a sensitivity. All those things fit and rest very easily with the concept of the male. And of course, therefore, for a woman, I think, um, might put them off science. And I think this image of scientists really needs to be revised. And that's why meetings here today are so really valuable, just to tell you that we are not like that. Even the scientists, even the men I meet, funnily enough, are not after world domination. You know, they're, they're actually much more concentrated on their own little research project. Um, quite often, it's the men that aren't particularly socially interactive. They're the ones that just beaver away on their little bench. They certainly don't want to conquer the world. And I think uh, people like Ian Fleming, who always have the Ian, evil scientists in the James Bond movies, um, and Frankenstein, have done the world a disservice to, to give one that idea. Also, the idea that to do a science, you have to be free of emotion. I think is wrong as well. Of course, when you do an experiment, the whole point of experiment and why science is such a rigorous discipline and why it's so exciting when it's right is that you really are establishing what is real. It's not just an idea, it's something that can be confirmed empirically and agreed on by another impartial observer. Those things are very important. Of course, they are, quote, emotion-free and that you do not have a subjective judgment over whether you've got a certain result or not. But the interest that has actually inspired that, the interpretation you then put on these hard results, these are subjective and they are very emotion laden. I cannot 
put across to you enough how you slog away at something day after day after day after day. And incidentally, if you need anything in science, it's a certain tenacity of not giving up, not caving in and saying, right, okay, Mother Nature, I'm going to show you, I'm going to not give up. And you know, however opaque you are and however much you hide from me, what I'm trying to find out, I'm going to try and make this work. And you have to have that real attitude of digging your heels in and sticking your chin out. Yeah? Now, all those things, if you do that day after day, then suddenly it works, or suddenly you see that you've, it's you that's been stupid, usually it's you that's been stupid, of course. And that instead of it being, uh, it's like those ink block tests, you know, instead of the vase, it's the profile or something like that. You suddenly see something obvious, and suddenly you have an idea and you put it to the test and it works. I can guarantee, guarantee that nothing is more exciting than that you are absolutely euphoric with emotion. So the idea that scientists don't feel things, um, that there's no emotion to be had in science, that you're mechanically some little operative pressing buttons, uh, nothing really uh, could be further from the truth. Then the, the issue is, I think, why it's unpopular with schoolgirls, this issue of that everyone is going to be working with people and being a doctor or a vet, the acceptable face, the girly face of science. I think that's, again, something that one has to try and disabuse. At the moment, I think that prevails because girls put up with science as a means to an end. Really, they're not interested in the science. They're doing it because they want to be there as, you know, the sort of um, brain surgeon, like in sort of emergency room or something. I, I don't know if there's a female brain surgeon in an emergency room, but I've never actually watched ER. But nonetheless, they want to be in some... Um, people-type position. I think if they really thought about the science and if, if they were shown how exciting science itself could be, then they'd be fully into having a career as a scientist or using science not just to become a doctor but to actually be as a launch pad from which they've shown themselves to be someone with a disciplined mind, someone who is aware of controls, aware of mastering a certain corpus of facts, the sort of things that um, employees like. Um, and finally, there's this issue of what research scientists actually do. I think people really don't know anything about that. And the more we can try and have interactive connections between schools and laboratories, uh, the, the better that would be. A scheme I'm trying to set up here with Sheffield Hallam University is to introduce a scheme where science teachers are twinned with people like myself, research scientists, so that they're in email contact and the school teachers are appraised of their particular twins uh, progress on a day-to-day -day or a week-to-week -week basis, and they can pass that on to their pupils, and the pupils would then get an invigorated and excited teacher telling them about some real hot-off-the-press data. Conversely, it would mean that perhaps their sixth-formers or fifth-formers could sometimes go into the lab, perhaps even have summer jobs there, and we'd have a wider scientific community rather than these divisions of the ivory-coated, um, ivory-towered uh, lab scientist, the mad, bad male, um, turning his back on the general public. I think all those things can actually be tackled. Let's now go on and look at a, a wider issue. There's the conflicts of children. Now, perhaps I ought to touch on my own personal situation here, that I don't have children for many reasons, um, but one of them is because I couldn't see in my day how I would be able to give full time to my research and at the same time um, be the sort of mother I would like to think I've been. It was interesting that Nancy Lane touched on and is a very good role model for the fact that you can do those things. On the other hand, she had to talk about all the different helpers she had. And my own view is that people like Nancy are still doing an enormous amount, but it's harder for them than it need be. And I think perhaps if the government had more schemes targeting people with primary childcare, usually these would be women, but it shouldn't be if it was, say, a widow or someone like that looking after children, it would also encompass them, where they actually have pump priming money so that 
if they wish to, they can go back to research. See, unlike any other subject, like medicine or, or veterinary services or dentistry, where you can have maternity leave and go back and pick up where you left off, if you go back two years later, then the publications will have moved on, and if you haven't published anything or kept up with the literature, then you won't get grants. And I'd love to see money made available from the government, primarily targeted at women, so that they can take two or three years off to have a child and enjoy their child and be there for the formative time, and then um, go back knowing that they can compete for funds with people like themselves um, and thereby not jeopardize their career too much. Something like that. I think this government should use more imagination than it has done so far. When I was in France, there were far more women and women with children working in labs because there were far more childcare facilities. So um, these things are possible. Second is um, the lack of assertiveness. As I said earlier, I think we shouldn't regard um, everything as everyone else's fault. I think we have to take our own destiny into our own hands. Um, here, lack of assertiveness is, is the lead one. I think that in the classroom, girls should be encouraged to put their hands up and actually be put under fire, and almost as a kind of role modeling, or kind of whatever it's called, play model, whatever they do, you know, they're sort of where you're actually acting it out, just to get used to someone saying, no, you're talking rubbish, and you say back, no, I'm not, frankly. And I think just if you were trained to do that, to stick, stand up for yourself, um, that would be a lesson for life, not just for, for doing science. But I think that is a problem because when you do science, you need to defend your viewpoint, you need to seek funds, and hopefully you need to lead a group. The issue with women in science is not that you're in a lab because you can have a lot of junior women in labs. The thing is to have you running your group, dictating policy, sitting on committees like, like Nancy's been sitting on, to actually be there making policies and envisaging, realizing your visions and your ideas and um, transmitting those. To do that, you cannot be a shrinking violet. You have to be proud of yourself and believe in what you do and be prepared to defend what you do. That's not to say be a total bigot. You should listen to other people, of course. But on the other hand, you should know in your heart of hearts where you're going. And that needs, I think, help and training. Here is the Svengali syndrome, which is another issue that I feel we should be aware of. Another problem with women is that often if the man... Um, running a lab has a young, a junior woman working for him. That can lead to a very unpleasant um, relationship where the man likes having some biddable young girl around, and I'll use girl in this sense properly, and meanwhile the girl likes having some father figure that she can look up to, and is therefore, she's cushioned from all the slings and arrows of having to assert herself, stand up for herself, and he of course, um, like many men I'm afraid, likes to have admiring women sort of clustering around. This is what I call the Svengali syndrome, and I think the only answer to that is to have people like me running groups, i.e. it's a vicious circle, just more women um, running labs. Then there's frank prejudice. Now this is going to make you very angry, this next slide. So I'm warning, because whenever I've shown it to people, um, it's made them angry, because sometimes people say, oh, come on, you're just, you know, you're overdoing it. There isn't, you're really imagining it, you're being hysterical, you're being neurotic. It's interesting how, incidentally, you know, um, men are, are tough, whereas women are neurotic quite often, and it's very funny, the, the words that are used. And, um, anyway, you're being neurotic, if you imagine, or hysterical, that there's frank prejudice. But let me now show you, and some of you may have heard of this or seen this, I'm going to show you two slides from the journal Nature, published last summer, um, from a Swedish study, and bear in mind Sweden has one of the best records for equal opportunities in the world. Um, it was only allowed this paper because of the Freedom of Information Act that is not currently available in this country. And let me show you this study. The problem was that very few women were getting grants from the Swedish Medical Research Council, and so two women investigated how women were perceived and how good they actually were. So this is the study. I won't even pretend to pronounce these correctly, by Wenneraz and Wold, 
and you can see it was on nepotism and sexism. Sexism was the most important point of this paper. Nepotism was merely, did you know people who sat on the panels? Now let's look and see how it compares. They drew a graph. On the one side was how good you actually were, and you can assess how good you actually are by the number of papers you publish, by the number of times those papers are cited, and by what order you are, if you're the first order, the senior author on a paper or not. So you can actually devise a statistic, you can actually quantify how good someone is, and then compare it um, against how you're perceived. And let's just have a look at this. Okay, so here we have your actual ability against the perceived competence. And you can see here that for a woman who has the same actual ability as a man, she's judged about as bad as the worst men. Absolute proof of frank prejudice. It was worked out that for a woman to be perceived as good as a man, even if she was actually as good, she would have to have published 20 more papers. Now, in my area, that would be about 10 years more work. So let just that sink in, that this is frank prejudice and one of the problems, that for you to be judged, or for me, my generation, not yours, for my generation to be judged as good as a man, even if I am as good as that man, I would have to have done 10 years more work. Now, that's what I mean by frank prejudice. That is not a hysterical response. That is reality, and that's why meetings like this and the sort of um, initiatives we're trying to set up are really important, because that's what you're, um, my generation are up against. Hopefully, you will not be. And finally, there's a glass ceiling. Uh, which Jean Irvin referred to, again, I think women can often be their own worst enemy and that they think, I'm not good enough. It's what we were touching on in the discussion. Of course you're good enough. And people think they're not good enough. They apologize for themselves. They think that they're imposters. They think they'll be seen through. I don't know why women have these ideas, but for whatever reason, biological or environmental, I think that schools would have a valuable role to play in dispelling them and letting people be proud of themselves. So just to summarize what I see as the diverse problems of women in science, um, there's the unpopularity with schoolgirls, and that's really what we were focusing on today. But I think uh, one could say that, one is unpopular, that science is unpopular with schoolgirls because of these other issues that I think schoolgirls are aware of as reflected in the questions, such as conflicts of children, lack of assertiveness, frank prejudice, and indeed the glass ceiling. So the only way forward, to my mind, is to actually stand up for yourself and try creatively to think what can be done. Now, one of the things that can be done, and this is what I want to talk about now very briefly, is what actually research entails. Because it's all very well for me to stand up and say how marvelous research science is. But I just want to spend five or 10 minutes conveying to you how really exciting it can be and how it's to do with the most relevant thing of all in your life, or can be. And in my case, it happens to be the human mind. Here you have the brain housed in its normal home. Here's the teeth, so you can see just how banal the whole thing is. And yet somehow, this is the inner universe. This is the thing that makes you, you, that creates a special world that you're living in at the moment that no one else can hack into. Here's George Bernard Shaw, um, a picture that I like because it looks really as if there's something going on in there. But really, that's all there is, just a load of soggy tissue. And somehow that's translated into that. How is that done? How is an individual mind created? Well, this is what, if we were to tear Shaw's brain apart or anyone's brain apart, this is what you'd find. Are loads of connections connecting up these brain cells or, or neurons that Nancy referred to earlier. If you were to count those number of connections in the outer layer of your brain alone at one a second, and just in the outer layer alone, it would take you 32 million years to do that. Yeah. And somehow we've got to work out how those connections is responsible not just for your individual character, but for your consciousness too the sort of consciousness that a machine will never have. Well, why connections are very interesting 
is if you look at the growth of connections after birth, you can see it is quite astonishing. You're born with pretty much all the brain cells that you're ever going to have. But look at the newborn, the three months, the 15 months, and the two-year-old human brain, and you can see the astonishing change is in the growth of connections. And that's marvelous news because it means that you can be you. These connections will mirror your experiences, your memories, therefore, and they will, in turn, determine how you subsequently see the world. So this, if you like, is the evolution of an individual mind. Even if you're a clone, even if you're an identical twin, you will have a different brain from your counterpart with a different configuration of the microcircuitry because even if you've been brought up in the same home, you will have had a different life, a different set of experiences. So here you are living your life. This is a Bruegel picture. Um, each person has an individual mind that is evolved and just grows all the time. It's not just in childhood. Your brain is highly dynamic. It will change even if you just twiddle two fingers like this more than the other five, that will be mirrored in your brain connections, as has been shown um, in certain experiments. So this is what I call the mind, and I think it summarizes it up, because the mind is the personalized brain. It's like you might personalize a computer, but much more than that. It's something that's dynamic and ever-changing. So although you're born with all the brain cells you're ever going to have, it's the growth of connections between the cells that accounts for the brain after birth. And these connections, in turn, will reflect experience. There's a story of a little boy who was blind in one eye, and it was simply because when he was very small, one eye had been bandaged. So the brain operates on a use-it-or-lose-it principle. So the connections from the bandaged eye had nowhere to go. The target was taken over by the other eye. So when the bandage was removed, that was the end of it. He was permanently blind. Um, in turn, the configuration of connections will influence your further perception. So if you have a certain association about things, this might mean something. For, if my husband had proposed to me while holding a baton, this wasn't, of course, the case, then above and beyond this being a mere pointer, it would have a really special significance to me. That's a rather silly example, because, of course, I don't think anyone proposes marriage holding a stick. It wasn't that bad. You know, oh, yeah, marry me, or it wasn't like that. But I, it just happens to be what I have at hand. But I'm sure you can all yourself think of examples of things that are special to you, have a special meaning to you, and no one else. So in a sense, that's how it is for everything. Everything has a special meaning, because no one else has had the associations you've had with things. You might have certain shared ones, but they will have come up at different times and give you your special meaning to life, your special mind. And finally... What's even better, these connections are highly changing. You're not like a fly trapped in amber. You're evolving all the time. You're not the same person as you were five years ago. It's a bit like having a room where the furniture is constantly replaced or changed. The actual theme may have been set earlier on, and the more you live in your room, the more you'll settle down to the kind of furniture you like. But then the rug could catch fire, or you might decide as you're living in it and you want to change the bits of furniture around. Things are always on the move. You're an animal. You're animated. Things are on the move all the time. So I think that was just a... Yes, this is really to conclude, and that was a real overview of what my view of the mind and brain problem and what I like working on, which is therefore these connections and how they do reflect the environment, how they go wrong in Alzheimer's disease when sadly um, people's personality tends to um, disintegrate and, and that is so devastating for the carers. It's really a very important problem that's going to affect your generation even more than mine. But really, I felt I ought to conclude, um, and this is... A, a very appropriate way to conclude, I think, with Rita Levi-Montalcini. Now, the reason that she's a good person to conclude with is that, first of all, she worked on that very issue, that issue of plasticity and um, neuronal connections being constantly dynamic and restless. The second issue, and why her work is so relevant, is it does touch on the evolving mind and, therefore, the evolving individual. And my own message to you would be, never forget that you are an individual. 
that trumps everything else. It trumps where you're from, what gender you are, what background you have, how clever, or anything like you are you with your individual configuration of mind. And you get out there and conquer the world and you stretch yourself as much as you can because there'll always be people who are cleverer, poorer, richer, thinner, fatter, whatever than you are. You have your own agenda and you should stretch yourself to your limits and you certainly shouldn't be constrained by someone saying that because you're a girl, you shouldn't do science. And to cap that, I'd like to talk about Rita Levy, who some of you may have heard of. The reason that she's so special was not because of the spectacular, well, it was because of the spectacular work that she did, but she did this work um, under huge difficulties. She was Jewish in the war, in Mussolini's Italy, she's Italian, and because she was Jewish, um, because of the um, fascism that prevailed at the time, she was barred from practicing medicine, so she set up a lab in her bedroom. That takes character, she wasn't just, she didn't just go off, she actually again, stuck out her chin and got on with things and set up a lab in her bedroom, did this absolutely pioneering work for which she justifiably won the Nobel Prize. And if anyone's a role model, she should be. Thank you very much. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.